Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome Dr. John Cutterback. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you. Um, one might wonder why we would read and study Plato. He is a Greek pagan. Don't we have all that we need in the deposits of the faith without going to Greek pagans? Why would you good people come out of an evening in, in your lives that are so busy and making so many demands upon you to study Plato? 5th to 4th century B.C. in Athens. Well, I'd like to suggest, if, if you are wondering now, that, that, that's a reasonable question. May I, may I give you this encouragement? I, I think, I hope you've, you've made a good decision. W why is it worth our doing? Because I think we should have the humility to be willing to learn from the men who used reason so remarkably well as to be able to have fundamental insights that can never change into the meaning of human life. There is certainly much they don't see. And th there's no reason to pretend that Plato, Aristotle, Socrates saw things that they didn't see. But we want to learn from what they did see. Somehow in God's great providence, they are assigned to us of what human reason can do. I present for your consideration, God intended us to, to be able to use our reason well, to ask fundamental questions, to come to fundamental answers. And so it's that that we, that we turn to here, and with, again, hopefully in, in, in a spirit of docility. Docility means a willingness to learn. If there's someone worth learning from, it doesn't have to be perfect. If there's someone worth learning from, it behooves us to be willing to listen. Two great questions that are addressed in Plato's Republic. There's a number of other ones, but two great questions are, what is justice? And is the just life worth living? Aren't the, I mean, talk about perennial questions, the importance of which can never fade. What is justice? Note the Greeks. Just as, interestingly, the ancient Hebrews, used the, they, they saw justice as being kind of the, the prince among virtues. Remember that great line in Scripture where when Joseph is introduced, it just says, jo Joseph, being a just man. This captures fundamentally who he is. Joseph was a just man. What? Does that mean? That is a question it takes a lifetime to answer. I'll say this to you as a Christian. Part of the great challenge and the great beauty here is these virtues really at the end of the day are a unique, irrepeatable way of our being like God. And you're going to see, you're actually going to see Socrates and Plato in their own way. They saw that. They knew that, that when man does what man should do, right there, it is a remarkable kind of incarnation of the divine. And so for that very reason, to ask what justice is will never be a question that you have, have completed thinking about. If we think we've got the definition, therefore we know what it is, we're all set, I present for your consideration, we're missing something. It's that deep that we need to go back to it always, and that's one of the reasons this book is of absolutely perennial import, because it asks such a fundamental question. What is justice? And then having asked that, 
and this is more what we'll turn to next week, is it really worth doing? Just to, just to, just to pause there for a moment and, and, and just appreciate this. We have to get inside the question. Sometimes on, on, on the outside, in the abstract, it just, it just seems like this academic question. In the context of the dialogue, it becomes very clear that this is a real question asked by real people, people like us in the room. More and more, we, we realize in, in, in certain ways in, in darkening times, the times where there's also much reason for hope, there's a lot of pain and depression out there, even amongst us. And people genuinely are asking the question, don't we every now and then, particularly at certain dramatic points, ask, is it really worth it to do that? That arduous good that is being just, is it really worth it? Don't we too have those moments where we look around and think, golly, there seem to be an awful lot of people around us who seem to be doing awfully well in life that aren't concerned at all with justice. That is exactly what is going on in this dialogue of people coming to Socrates and saying, really, Socrates, let's just really look this in the eye. And they make the strongest case you can imagine, as strong a case as you would ever want to make to a wise man of, really, prove to me it's worth doing that thing. They make that case to him. And they get him to see that unjust men in this life often thrive. And you're really going to say to us in the face of that that it's worth doing what's necessary to live a just life? And that's the great drama of the Republic. It's not, it's not for facile, easy answers. Oh, well, of course the answer is yes. No, no. Is Plato's answer ultimately yes? Part of the amazing power and beauty is that it is but only in the face of really seeing human life in all of its particular drama and suffering and pain, and not just being off in the clouds somewhere. That's why it's so beautiful when it comes to say, yes, even given all that, if you understand, if we just can understand what justice is, the answer to this question is clear. It's not easy to see it. It's not easy to see it. And really, honestly, then as now, how few really see it, how few really live it. Let's set up the dialogue here. And, I'm gonna, and, and you have a quotation sheet. I'm not going to refer to absolutely every, every one of them. Should have grabbed one myself as I'm coming up. I got a, got a copy here. Here's, here's the setup. Okay, so you've heard of Platonic dialogues. All right, so first of all, Plato is the one who's, who wrote the Republic. The main person speaking in it is Socrates. But it's a dialogue where he, so Plato presents this as Socrates, the wise man, speaking with a group of people. Some of them are his disciples, others are not his disciples, but they're there simply to participate. So at times you might hear me say, Plato says or Socrates says. We take that as basically interchangeable. Plato is ultimately speaking through the mouth of Socrates here. So for our, for our purpose, scholars can ask, well, did the real Socrates hold exactly what Plato says? It, it, it doesn't particularly matter. The bottom line here is here's Plato, great wise man, presenting his teaching through the mouth of Socrates, who was his teacher and who did teach these things, even if not exactly as Plato presents it. But we get to see, what, what do we get to see? What's the title of our, of, of our lecture? The Discovery of Virtue. What particularly is our focus here, ladies and gentlemen? The incredibly exciting reality of, of this masterpiece of a work where Plato is presenting a dialogue of Socrates with his students, where Socrates is trying to bring his students to discover what virtue is, and its unsurpassable power and beauty. That's, that, that's what's going on. So in reading this work, you are entering, you're, you're getting to watch at the absolute master's hands, Plato, 
a presentation of another absolute master. It's just astounding that you have these three men in a row of Socrates, teacher of Plato, 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 teacher of Aristotle. It's just they're almost unparalleled and they came directly in a row. It, it, it speaks of a, just a gift of divine providence that we have them there together. So here we have Plato writing this for us so we can see Socrates in action. So what happens at the beginning? The discussion starts because an old man is there and the question comes up of the difficulty of old age. And you know, it's funny, when I first read The Republic when I was a little bit younger, it's, it, it's, it's, that didn't mean that much to me. And, and, and now, you know, p part of it is also I now have a mother who's a widow. I'm a little older myself. And you just, you, you just, you start to realize people suffer as they get older. There's an awful lot of pain that goes along with simply growing old. The loneliness, the, the things that just aren't there anymore, the people that aren't there anymore, and you combine that with physical pain, it's, it's really hard, you know, and it's just interesting. Most people that talk about this normally aren't so much the ones that are in it. Right, but here, but here, the characters. So that, that so much wisdom is going on there, in it being raised in this incredibly powerful human way of Socrates turning to an older man and saying, "Cephalus, talk to me. How is old age? It's hard, isn't it?" And so it, this is what begins the discussion of, "Well, yeah, old age is really hard." But you know what? Just to encapsulate, because it's just what gets us launched here. What's the insight that comes out there in the discussion? What really comes out is this. Though there's a lot of different factors that go into the difficulty of old age, for some, at the end of the day, though it is a real suffering, it's not only endurable, but it still can be a happy time. Why? Because of the kind of character that you have. If you're a certain kind of person, even in that suffering, you are satisfied and can be happy. It, it, it's an amazing thing to see that in the face of, again, of all those things, that there's still this real possibility, even in that suffering, of happiness. So, what, so what's brought out in that discussion? For some people, Old age is going to be almost unbearable, particularly, says, for those who have not lived their lives well and who are still not living their lives well. They'll look back and remember bad things. And even now, they'll have many things that are kind of crushing in upon them, for they have not made the effort to reform themselves and to live well. And so the main factor in their happiness is simply their character. It's such, a, it's such a simple point, but this is, this is how this great masterpiece begins, by asserting this fundamental point, ladies and gentlemen, and we live in an age that just heightens the drama of such a thing, because our age explicitly and implicitly denies this, that the only true human happiness is in good character. <laughs> Our age explicitly denies this. And here, and, and here, this is where the Republic begins, the only true human happiness, regardless of the surrounding various travails and sufferings, will be in good character. This will be echoed again by the, the, the real, the one that St. Thomas Aquinas will simply call the philosopher, the one who in many ways inherited the wisdom of both of these men, namely Aristotle, will capture this very beautifully in his Nicomachean Ethics, where he'll just say, human happiness is not a product of living virtuously. Aristotle will say human happiness is living virtuously absolutely foundational principle in ethics. And here again, this is where Plato's Republic begins. And so that's the background, though he hasn't given any proof for it. He, he basically, it's, it's been asserted. So that's what leads into, well then, but what is virtue then? Because of virtue, of course, moral character. They just as asserted this connection between true human happiness and moral character. So the, the obvious next question is, well, 
what is moral character? Because it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to just know we have to have a good character if we don't know what it is. So then more specifically, they just go for the kingpin among the virtues, what is justice? And so, so boom, there we are, having been set up as we are asking really the most fundamental human question about human life that there is, really, is what does a good human life look like, which is to ask, what is justice? So our focus then will be how that search gets going and how in the, basically in the first half of the Republic, the main thing that we're going to look at is how he finds the four cardinal virtues. Justice is one of them. That's the one he's particularly going after. But along the way, he's going to point to the other ones for us. So we're going to be able to see here how he's going to build our understanding of what is virtue in general and move us then towards more specifically what is justice. So let's, um, let's, let, me, let me give you then the, the order here, which I'm going to follow. Our first step is the notion of virtue in general, which is the necessary background in order to appreciate more specifically what is justice and the other virtues. Then we're going to look at the four virtues in the city. What we mean by the city is, the, is civil society in the nation. And part of the, of course, the book is called The Republic. The basic word there, ladies and gentlemen, he's after finding out what justice is. But he holds that if we're going to find out what these virtues are in individuals, we're going to have to also look at what they look like in a society-wide way. And so that's why we have to begin with the four virtues in the city. And then we look at the four virtues in the individual. Having seen them in the city, then we're able to go and look at them in the, in the individual. And then finally, he's going to make a beautiful comparison between justice and health. And that's where we'll uh, end for today. So let's begin with the notion of virtue in general. And I'm going to have you look at quotation number five. Quotation number five on your handout. Here, so we're get, get ready to get philosophical. I'm going to try to do it in such a way that I think we can we can all be on the on the same page together. But this isn't going to be a walk in the lilies. Well, it is kind of a walk. Never mind. Just try to try to try to try to stay with me. I think we can we can do this together. And he, he's going to jump out to make some general points here about human nature in general, and it's gorgeous. Come then, let's consider this. Is there some function of a soul that you couldn't perform with anything else? For example, taking care of things, ruling, deliberating, and the like. Is there anything other than a soul to which you could rightly assign these and say they are its peculiar function? then will a soul ever perform its function well, Thrasymachus, if it is deprived of its own peculiar virtue, or is that impossible? All right, this is a classic text. Here, in a word, what is going on? His first key step in moving towards trying to understand what virtue is, is he has to understand something about human nature. So right now, ladies and gentlemen, he is going to point to something about human nature that is absolutely affirmed by the Christian tradition. It's a very simple insight, but again, to a certain extent, the fact that we live in this age that denies fundamental truths, in many ways that's a great suffering for us, but it also gives us this opportunity to see them in a new relief of, wow, we really can forget this, and it really do, we really do have to be reminded of this. Do you know what point he is fundamentally <coughs> making right there, ladies and gentlemen, in, in quotation number five? What he's trying to say is, at the heart of who you are is that you are rational. At the heart of being a person, of being human, is that you are rational. There are many things that you can do, and there's some aspects of human life that are not themselves directly rational. Things that we share in common with the animals, such as eating, Eating can be done in a rational way, but eating as such is not directly a rational activity. What is it he asks here? This is his fundamental approach to understanding who we are, and this is critical in order to understand what virtue is. Who are we? What is most characteristic of human nature? What is it that most sets a human soul apart from anything else? And again, 
again, that's the background. Look again at what he says. Is there some function of a soul, function, something that it alone does? Is there some function of a soul that you couldn't perform with anything else? And then here, it's not so easy to tell just from, from the quotation on the page, but this, this is his answer. He's saying, is it this? He's asking a question. He wants us to see yes. What is it that sets a soul apart from everything else in creation, a human soul meaning? Taking care of things, ruling, deliberating, and the like. Is there anything other than a soul to which you could rightly assign these and say they are its peculiar function? Ladies and gentlemen, Plato's saying, Socrates saying, you have to know who you are at the, at the absolute center of who you are is this power that then Aristotle especially will call reason. What particularly does reason do? I love this. It's, it's, you can't just reduce it down to one word. So he, he gives this interesting little series of them. What's a sign of the rational? Taking care of things. Ruling. One thing we'll see as we go along here, ladies and gentlemen, when Plato says ruling, he is talking about something that he sees as having the greatest of beauty. A sign of our age is that authority and ruling in general is seen as unnecessary evil, something to be minimized. When, 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 when these Greeks say ruling, they are saying, here is what sets man apart. He has reason so that he can govern himself and others. There's nothing like it. So rationality is who we are. Is there anything other than a soul to which you could rightly assign these and say they are its peculiar function? Then will a soul ever perform its function well through Symbicus if it is deprived of its own peculiar virtue, or is that impossible? So ladies and gentlemen, this is the great introduction of the term virtue. The term virtue that shows up all over the Catholic Catechism, this right here is, is a, a primary place in the history of our, of our civilization where the use of the term virtue is made clear. The Greek, I'm not, a, I'm not a Greek scholar, but this much I can tell you. The Greek word that is, being, that is translated as virtue is a Greek word that simply means excellence. And so what this is saying here, this is, this is an important conceptual move, ladies and gentlemen. It's important that you work with me in trying to grasp this. Virtue names the excellence of being human. And so the original meaning of the term virtue is nothing more or less than this. When you do what it means to be human well, extraordinarily well, that's called virtue. The, the term just means excellent at whatever. Now, the, the Greek word could be applied to other things. You could, you could refer to an excellent horse. What is an excellent horse? It's a horse that does what horses do well. What is an excellent human? A human that does what humans do well. What do humans do? We are to use our reason in governing ourselves and, as appropriate, governing others. And so the original meaning, again, of the term virtue is precisely the excellence in doing what is human. Isn't that neat? And then the, and then the various kinds of virtues, the various kinds of virtues are nothing other than the different ways of doing that. So, that, so at times, remember, a, a philosopher, a philosopher is just one who is seeking wisdom, seeking to go deeper into understanding the way things are. We just have to, we don't, uh, the good philosopher never seeks to impose upon reality his preconceptions. He's just trying to look there and see what's there. One of the things that you see is, isn't this fascinating? There's, there's a, a, a set of ways of being excellently human. There's not one human virtue. There's, there's a group of them. There's several of them. There's several different key aspects, different ways of doing what humans do well. And that is what the cardinal virtues are. Nothing more, nothing less than 
the different ways that you do what humans do well. So what he, what he moves into now is looking at the different cardinal virtues precisely in that context. So you conceptually want to bear in mind, note how he's, he, he's, he's building this up for you from a foundation. Where do these virtues come from? He, when, he, when he first saw the Republic, it's a very exciting moment where he says, well, traditionally, people have said that there are these four. He doesn't tell where the list of four comes from. It's just what people have seen. They have seen that there are these four different fundamental ways of being an excellent human being, of being excellent at doing what human beings do. And so he just humbly starts to examine them. He doesn't try to tell you why there is exactly these four and not others. He just goes into trying to see what they are. And what he does is he first looks for them in the city. So here's, here's our next step then. We go to the city. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, as a gentleman again, city, you have to understand, city is a translation of the Greek word polis, which is where we then get city in the sense of an urban area, Indianapolis, etc. But also, more generally, what it meant was the, the whole civil society. So don't think urban area, think of France, okay? The polis, the civil society. All right, so the city is man writ large. The city is man writ large. As Christians, there's, 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 there's much that we can see here. We can see God's great gift of, in, in his providential love and care that we don't live as humans as individuals. Indeed, we don't just live as humans in families. Human life is done in something called a polis. And for the Greeks, if you're not in a polis, you're not doing the human thing. I don't know if, if, you, if anyone remembers reading the Odyssey. Do you remember the, the Cyclops? The, the key thing about the Cyclops is they don't come together and live in a community. They each live in their own little huts, and, and, and they're monsters. I mean, this is, this, is, this is central to the Greek view, and frankly, it fits very well with the Christians. God calls us together into a community. It's not human to not be together in the community. And the community is the individual writ large. Plato, again, is a master of pointing this out. The concrete particular way that he looks at that is he, is he likes to divide the city into three parts. Now, this is his division. Obviously, there's other ways of doing this, but I'm just going to mention this to you because this helps us see what's about to come, helps us appreciate his beautiful understanding of the different virtues. The three parts of the city, he says, match up to three parts of the soul. There are the rulers of the city. There are then the kind of military soldiers of the city. And then there's the, the masses of the city. What does that correspond to in man? Corresponds to the rulers is the reason, the ruling part in man. Again, that's, that's going to be the, the, the central thing that's going to keep coming back. The other part is what next is what we call the spirited part. The spirited part are the higher emotions in man, particularly having to do with, with anger and spirit. And then finally, you have the appetites or the desires. And the, and, and the neat thing is the Greeks kind of saw it this way and it kind of matches up to the human, the human body. There's kind of the top and the middle and the bottom. The top is the kind of ruling part where you have reason. And then they have, and they even kind of refer to the chest as where the spirited part is, where if you're kind of excited about something, your, your, your chest swells. And then in general, the lower part of you is where the bodily desires are. All right? So there's three parts of the soul, the ruling part, the spirited part, and that desiring part. And it says that in the city, you see that same thing. You have the rulers who have to exercise rule over the whole city. You have the kind of spirited, you have the soldiers who have to protect and defend the good of the city in accord with the rule of the rulers. And then there's more the masses that need to make sure that they follow the right direction and wise laws that come from the rulers. Now you see that's very beautifully going to match up of then we have our bodily desires that are very important and strong and powerful in human life, but they, like a mob, can get out of control. And when they do, we've got a problem. Right, so you see how that's, that, that's, that's set up. 
Okay. Um, before we go into then the specific virtues, I just have to tell you because this is such a neat part of the Republic that you'll appreciate knowing about. He, before he says you can see the virtues in a city, he says we have to say a few things about what would make a city be a good one that could be virtuous. You know what the main thing he focuses on is education. So he, he goes on this side tour before he's willing to talk about what the virtues are. He says, we have to talk about what education would look like if you were possibly going to have a well-ordered city within which you'd be able to see what these various virtues are. And so I just I, I put a few quotations down here for you just so you could appreciate uh, a few of his thoughts on education. I'm on number six. Whenever anyone says such things about a god, and this is coming off of his saying some stories portray gods in a negative light. Whenever anyone says such things about a god, will be angry with him and not allow his poetry to be used in the education of the young. So that our guardians will be as god-fearing and godlike as humans can be. It's two reasons I threw that quotation in. There's two things that are going on at the, at the same time there. One of them is, you might know that Plato is known for being very concerned about what kind of literature and art there would be in, in, in a society. And he is known as someone who, is, who would want to exercise censorship. That is absolutely true. He was very aware of the type of arts, music, poetry that you have is going to be very much make a difference in the character of people. So he's very concerned about that. We're not, we're not going to go into that but I just in any detail. But I just want to point out his great concern about that because why? That's a key part of education. That's the first thing I wanted to see in the quotation. The other neat thing is, remember I said we'll see how they, they have this sense of man doing what man does is like God. And so, so that we become as God-fearing and God-like as humans can be. Next, next quotation on Education 7. When lawlessness has established itself there in music and poetry, it flows over little by little into characters, into character and ways of life. As I can't pass up the opportunity, it's not our topic, but I just, it's, but I just want to note it. Deacon Sabatino once had me do a lecture, I've done it with, with ICC, on, on music and moral formation. I use Plato as, as the main source. Aristotle absolutely follows him on this, and so I just want to just mention this to you. When both Plato and his great student Aristotle talk about what they're concerned about in the formation of young people, they spend more time writing about music than about any other particular topic. They are absolutely convinced that music both expresses a certain kind of moral character and it forms a certain kind of moral character. And they, he is captured well in this scary line when lawlessness, I mean, lawlessness right there is being used as, as strong a with, with, for a Greek to say without law is without order, it's, it's chaos. When lawlessness has established itself there, it, isn't that a good way of, of, of putting it? Music can literally incarnate, literally incarnate lawlessness it expresses it, it encourages it. And this has, and so here he is saying, you will know a culture by the kind of music there is in that culture. Number eight is a fascinating associated one. But when children play the right games from the beginning and absorb lawfulness from music and poetry, it follows them in everything and fosters their growth. 
Plato, for, for a man who soars in the clouds and talks about very high things, when he talks about the formation of the young, he's very concerned about things as, as simple as what kind of games are we playing? Isn't that a, a, a scary thought? What kind of games are people playing? This is very much associated with the whole question of virtue. All right, so just a, just a little quick foray off onto the side there of the kinds of things that he's concerned about that, of, that are a matter of trying to cultivate virtue. Next week, we're going to get more specific into other aspects of what he says about how to grow in virtue. Right now, we're trying to go through and fundamentally see what he means by virtue and the different virtues. All right, so now he goes through the four cardinal virtues. He begins with what in the text is called wisdom. It is also then called prudence, right? So in the four cardinal virtues, it's the, it's the one that is an intellectual one. He, I, I don't have an actual quotation, but I just gave you a little line on it there in number nine. Wisdom. Knowledge had by a small part of the city by which that part supervises the whole. All right, so what, what are we going to do right now? I'm going to take you through, and I'm going to show you how he introduces each of these virtues in the city. And I, ho I hope you're just able to get a little, a little insight into the beautiful way that he wants to help you picture it. He, 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 it's kind of cute in how he says it. He says, maybe if we look at virtues being exercised on a society-wide basis, it's bigger so it will be easier to see than if I pointed to it in one person. And given that the society is man writ large, we can see what our life is supposed to be like by looking at what it's like in a good civilization. That's a hard point, side point for us to hear, given that we're in a, in a society that in so many ways is sick. It's, it's, it's kind of hard for us to hear that. Nonetheless, we, 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 we hear, here we have, we can, we can still do it in our understanding. Our tradition has this clearly. You don't have to see a good society right in the flesh. We can consider using reason what fundamental characteristics it have. And one thing that he first begins by emphasizing, there will be men who rule it who are wise. They know what human life is about, and their fundamental purpose in their life is to guide and to order the entire society so that human, true human flourishing will happen in this society. Isn't that dramatic? This is the understanding of what civil authority should be. Not just keeping people from hurting one another, not just setting up fair rules for, for economic growth and international trade. Laws should be made that are essential to bringing about the communal virtuous flourishing. And, and, and he, they insisted this takes a remarkable wisdom. There will be few that have it. And, w and one of the, this is, this is not what I'm most going to emphasize, but I want to share this because it's such a neat point in the Republic. If there's one thing that Pl Plato and Socrates make clear, the great drama of political life will be this. Will those who rule us be truly wise? For if those who should rule don't know how to rule, the disorder will be great. They could not, could not be more clear on that. And of course, likewise, by, by very powerful analogy, we're going to be able to bring that to our own lives here in just a moment. I go on to courage, one of my favorites. Um, can you not love all of them? I'm in quotation number 10. Check this out. He went, what does courage look like in the city? He talks about well, how, how you particularly have to form it in a particular part of the city. As then you'll see in these virtues, he's particularly placed them. Wisdom, you need to have in the rulers. Courage, you're especially going to need to have in the soldiers. Look how he puts it. When we selected our soldiers and educated them in music and physical training, the two great components of the training of the young for the Greeks before they went on to their liberal studies was they were trained physically and then they were trained in uh, music. What we, what we were contriving was nothing other than this that because they had the proper nature and upbringing, they would absorb the laws in the finest possible way, just like a die. So their belief about what they should fear 
and all the rest would become so fast that even such extremely effective detergents as pleasure, pain, fear, and desire wouldn't wash it out. How is, how is he conveying here what courage in the city is? If you have in the city, especially you have a group of men who have been so formed, they are so dedicated to the truths of the wisdom that has been conveyed, especially through the good laws of the rulers, that they're willing to endure anything. Plato likes to use the phrase, it's a power of preserving something. It's a power of preserving the right understanding about human life. And to, to educate and encourage is like trying to put a dye into the wool so that it is in there so deeply that nothing can wash it out. So note how these virtues are interconnected. The wisdom is put so deeply into these men. The wisdom that first of all is in the rulers is put so deeply into these other men that nothing that comes along could ever wash it out. Let's, let's go on now and see what he says about moderation. I'm at number 11. Then don't you see that in your city too, the desires of the inferior many are controlled by the wisdom and desires of the superior few. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our interest here tonight is not in political philosophy. Um, Plato is, is not a big fan of democracy. He's in general, and, and I'll tell you just so you understand what Plato's thinking, just to stretch you a little bit. Why is Plato not a big fan of democracy? This is why, in, in his view, wisdom is such a, a, a rare jewel, it will never be had by the many. And since wisdom will not be had by the many, the many shouldn't rule. Wisdom can be had by the few. Those are the ones that you'd want to have rule you. Now, I know that, that, raises all kinds of, that raises all kinds of political questions, which we're, we're not, we, don't, we don't need to, to go into here at, at the moment, because our main interest here is not the political philosophy. But in any case, what I want to invite you to see here, just for the sake of set, the setups so that we can understand what he's going to say, especially moderation is in us. What's moderation in the city? Where especially the desires of the many will be ruled by, governed by, the wisdom of the rulers. And when you have that, he says, then you have a moderate and well-ordered and harmonious society. We're going to come, you already know where this is going, and we're going to come in a moment, and we'll talk about this in, in, in the individuals. Just, but just picture, he's saying, won't it be a peaceful society when the desires of the many, they have, and, they, and the many have many desires, but they need to be governed. If they are not governed by wisdom, then there will be chaos. Moderation, temperance, is what we're called as a, temp as a cardinal virtue, is when those many desires are governed and transformed. Finally, then, uh, we, have, we have justice. And in the city, he simply puts it this way. For the money-making money is the way he refers to the masses, the men. The money-making, the auxiliary, those are the soldiers, and the guardian classes, each to do its own work in the city. That's justice. When each is doing its part, then we're going to have justice. It seems a little bit anticlimactic. It'll become a little bit more clear now as we, we turn and move towards wrapping up by turning to the virtues um, in the individual. Let's, let's just quickly because our main interest is to go to justice, let's just quickly uh, give a quick thought on each of the others, wisdom, courage, and temperance, before we go on to justice, in view of what we just saw that it was in the city. So, what does wisdom, by our analogy to the city, what is he saying to us, ladies and gentlemen? What is, is he saying to us about each of these virtues that are the cardinal virtues, the, ver the, the word cardinal comes from the hinge. It's the hinge of our life. Our life swings on the hinge, as it were. Do we have these virtues or not? Wisdom. There is a knowledge that must be had by each of us as an individual. It must be had by our highest part, by reason. And what is it? It's the knowledge of the meaning of human life and how to achieve it, how to order things in our life so that we can do 
the good human life. We naturally find ourselves wanting to ask right then, where does such a wisdom come from? I'd just like to throw out at you, it, it seems to me, um, we sh it is a grace that we are here together this evening studying this because that's exactly what we're seeking tonight. We're not seeking just any knowledge, ladies and gentlemen. We're seeking wisdom, which is the knowledge of the most important things, which if we see it or begin to get it, it will empower us like it empowers the rulers in the city to give order to our whole life. There will never be order and peace in our life if we don't come to have that rare knowledge of how to order things, which is what the wisdom of the rulers in the city does. And the amazing thing is, not everyone's called to be the, the wise ruler in a city. Absolutely every one of us is called to have the wisdom of how to live our individual life well in our own city. For if the city is us writ large, we're the city writ small. And there's a ruler in us. And, and I, I, I love this simple point. Socrates sees this great drama of will the city actually have wise rulers? And experience shows it seems kind of rare. Will we actually have a wise ruler in us? <laughs> it is the exact same question. Then there's courage. Again, a great phrase. It's a power of preserving. A power of preserving. What's it preserving? It's preserving, again, it's really preserving the wisdom. Once we understand what the good life really is, it's one thing to understand it. It's another thing then to enact it. When we're threatened by this, we're, we're, we find this pleasure over here appealing so much, we're very afraid of this. We're, we're fearful we're not going to be able to achieve such and such or support our family or whatever. The fears and the cares of life come in. And often the wisdom is overthrown. As the rulers in a city would be overthrown if there isn't a solid, as it were, soldiery. So likewise, there has to be this great cardinal virtue in us. That, is, has, that has been fortified, and we'll look more specifically at it next week. What a great question to ask, and I like to say to my students, we, don't, we might not get all the right answers, but at least we're making progress in asking the right questions. How about this is a great question to ask. What do I do to die, D-Y-E, myself, to put the die of wisdom so deeply in me when that next temptation comes along, when that next fearful thing comes along, I have the power of preserving the knowledge of how I should live. We've got to die ourselves. Again, to put the die deep. He says, as, as, as that great analogy has it, so the color is so fast in there, it's not going anywhere. And then, of course, we have temperance. More details next week. Fundamental, fundamental nature now. What's the, what's, the, what's the fundamental insight here? Our lower desires are good, ladies and gentlemen. You know that. We need to remind ourselves of this. Plato saw this very clearly. When they are ruled by reason, they, they become themselves. Our lower desires are good. When we pursue them according to reason, all flourishes. There's harmony in all of man. When they run out of control, the whole is upset. I don't need to give you the example, but I will, because some things never change. Plato saw it very clearly. It was the most easy and obvious way that the cart of human happiness is upset. Unleash, the pa unleash sexual passions. 
have them be ungoverned by reason, and all is overthrown. Just as in a city, if the mob ruled, you'd have absolute chaos. In the individual's human life, you have chaos. But as in the city, you have perfect order where everything has its place. Likewise in man, when reason is governing everything, all has its place. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, we have justice. I'm going to ask you to look at quotation number 13. Then we must also remember that each one of us in whom each part is doing its own work will himself be just and do his own. There's an awful lot, there's an awful lot in that statement. Remember how in the city you had all will be well if each part is doing what it should be? We must also remember that each one of us in whom each part is doing its own work will then himself be just, and he then will do his own work. This is brought up beautifully in the next quotation, number 14. And in truth, justice is, it seems, something of this sort. However, it isn't concerned with someone's doing his own externally, but with what is inside him, with what is truly himself and his own. One who is just does not allow any part of himself to do the work of another part or allow the various classes within him to meddle with each other. He regulates well what is really his own and rules himself. He puts himself in order, is his own friend, and harmonizes the three parts of himself like three limiting notes in a musical scale, high, low, middle. By the way, no, he, can't, he can't resist using the m musical analogy because he's so convinced that right human order can be captured in good music. He binds together those parts. Remember the parts we're talking about, the reason, the spirit of parts, the appetites. He binds together those parts and any others there may be in between. And from having been many things, he becomes entirely one, moderate, and harmonious. This is, this is one of my favorite lines in the whole republic, this next one right here. Only then does he act. Do, do, do you see what's being conveyed here? Here is the unbelievably nuanced insight of this man into what human justice is. It's fundamentally an interior order that then expresses itself in exterior order. Hmm. One never knows. He puts himself in order, again, is his own friend, harmonizes the three parts of himself like three limiting notes, high, low, and low. He binds together those parts, and others that may be in between, and from having been many things, it becomes one moderate harmonious. Only then does he act. And when he does anything, whether acquiring wealth, taking care of his own body, engaging in politics, or in private contracts. Note how he knows those are the things he knew that we all would normally think about when we think of justice. We think of doing business, engaging in politics, private contracts. In all these, he believes that the action is just and fine that preserves this inner harmony and helps achieve it and calls it so and regards as wisdom the knowledge that oversees such action. So in a word, what is, what is, his, what is his key insight into, into justice? When, when your reason is ruling, when it is governing your passions, when your higher passions, your spirited part, have themselves been so imbued by reason that they are aiding your reason, when each part of man is doing its own part, what it's supposed to be doing, then you have this perfect interior order. That's even better than me singing. I mean, I mean, uh, wow. I, I, maybe this is an example of, of well-ordered music. Should I, uh, should I wait a moment or should I just keep... Uh, I am. I, I'm close. It's going to be a little hard for me to beat that beat that singing, but I'm going to. Um, should I just lip sync with it? So, I'll, I'll I'll do my best not to be distracted. If you promise not to be distracted, I'll and we've got two minutes and we'll be done. Um, so so we we we've come here to the again kind of the, the culmination of 
justice now in the individual. We have this interior order that then when we have that, then and only then are we able to do what we're supposed to do in the exterior realm. Do you see, the great insight is how do you assure that you are the kind of person that will always render what is due to those around you? It is, is it about, it is only from first having seen the wisdom of what the meaning of human life is, having had the discipline to put that order into all of our passions, our higher passions and our lower passions, having this perfect interior harmony, then we are the kind of person that will inevitably and beautifully do it as just in the exterior realm. I'm, we're, 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 we, I only want to spend another minute. I wanted to have a little bit more time to, to give you the, uh, the, his beautiful little analogy to health. Let's just end by my reading it to you here with a, with a final sentence. To, to produce health is to establish the components of the body in a natural relation of control and being controlled one by another. While to produce disease is to establish a relation of ruling and being ruled contrary to nature. Then isn't to produce justice, so this analogy of body to soul, health in the body, now we go over to the soul, what is health then in the soul? Then isn't to produce justice to establish the parts of the soul in a natural relation of control one by another while to produce injustice is to establish a relation of ruling and being ruled contrary to nature. Virtue seems then to be a kind of health, fine condition, and well-being of the soul, while vice is disease, shameful condition, and weakness. I just want to quickly say, is this to me is one of my favorite arguments that the nature of justice is something that's objective. People say, well, justice is for you, whatever you think it is, and justice is for someone else, whatever that person wants it to be. The, Plato's beautiful analogy, justice is to the soul as health is to the body. The health of the human body is determined by nature. It is objective, and it is a fundamental order that is the same for all human beings, even with minor differences. By analogy, our soul has a health. When the order of nature is seen and we live according to it, this is the healthy soul that is precisely the just soul. So what does Plato leave us with here this evening? We all, of course, spend much time trying to learn about bodily health and what we need to know of the art of medicine and so forth. Do we likewise spend the time to grow in that much more important knowledge, growing in wisdom, to be able to understand how to bring about justice, the health of our soul? Thanks for joining us here this evening. What came before this concept of human virtue? What, what, was, he, what was he replacing? Um, I, I, honestly, I don't think he was was replacing. It, it, uh, that's, there, there's a lot in that question. That's a good question. Let me answer it the best the best that I that I can. Um, first of all, the notion of virtue wasn't new. He, he is articulating it in a particularly explicit and clear way. It would be completely unfair to those who go before him to make it sound as though they didn't have a sense of virtue also. But what 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 would be kind of the main opponent of this view, well actually on the quotation sheet, I'm glad you asked, one that, I, that we didn't have time for is the only quotation I put on the sheet is from someone other than Socrates in the, in the Republic is this major uh, uh, antagonist, Thrasymachus, and his quotation uh, is his uh, main assertion about justice, a person of great power outdoes everyone else. Now, what the, what, what, so what's going on there is the, the, the main view that is being suggested as opposed to virtue as being human greatness is power, is human greatness. And, 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 and of course, it's interesting that here it's being expressed theoretically. How often do we seek that in practice where kind of the power of having authority and control uh, over other people. Why often do we seek wealth 
because a certain power comes along with it? Why often do we seek business success in a kind of undue way? A certain power comes along with it. So, so here is kind of the major other view of human flourishing that, that is, I'm so glad you asked that question, because, it, because it, 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 it's something that endures. Again, the, the, a sign of a great masterpiece is that the these same fundamental distinctions or views are, are going on, and that a person of great power outdoes everyone else. That, that's to say, the just man gets squashed by the man of power. And so, is human greatness in trying to be like the gods by being extremely powerful? No, that fits very nicely with the whole quest Christian theme of, is our greatness in power? God is a mighty God. How are you like him? N not by power in the normal sense of the term. Question coming in uh, online from Teresa Cotter who asks, I've always understood the four cardinal virtues to be prudence, fortitude, justice, and temperance, not wisdom. Does wisdom refer to prudence? It does. It does. The um, Prudence is basically another name for practical wisdom. And so wisdom, there's a wisdom that is a higher wisdom that's not even practical wisdom, that's not one of the cardinal virtues at all. Just wisdom, meaning what Aristotle would call speculative wisdom as opposed to practical wisdom. But here what is being called wisdom is absolutely what is in the tradition called prudence, yes. And another question coming in online from Regina uh, from Pennsylvania, and I'll just shorten it a little bit, saying that um, we know, as Christians know that wisdom comes from God. From whom did Plato seek it? Um, great, great. Again, that, that, that's a great question. Um, I think that Plato, too, sought it from the divine. He did not have a crystal clear view of the divine, certainly not in the way that the Christians do, but he was absolutely clear that the divine is where the fullest wisdom is, and the human goal is to see as much like the gods do as we possibly can. And so he, he, he speaks of prayer, again, not in the thematic way the Christians do, but rendering what is due to the gods and asking them for help. I'm curious about his um, insistence on music um, education. What was, well, I wonder what kind of music that was, and is it used, was it worship music, or was it like folk music? I mean, why was this so important? Well, that, that, that's worthy of an entire lecture. Um, it's, it, it's a great, and in, 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 in a word, or 25, um, uh, I, 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 there are several kinds of good music. His fundamental principles of music imitates various moral states. And there are, as there are various good moral states, you can have music that shows courage. You can have sh music that shows temperance. Likewise, you can have music that shows intemperance, shall we say, sensuosity. You also can have music that would show cowardice. One of, his, one of the examples that he gives, though, is, and I, 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 I basically, I'm not even going to look for it in the book. This is almost a quotation. He says, some music is, what is it other than a soul that is humbly and plaintively addressing his God? And I, 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 I always, when, when he says that, I, I, I don't know what, we don't know exactly what Greek music would have sounded like, but I, I, I always think of a Gregorian chant, Kyrie, when I think of how he says, and there is some music that presents a soul in prayer. He saw that very clearly, and of course, here then St. Augustine, several centuries later, will say that he who, who sings prays twice as he is able to express those fundamental dispositions. The church is very clear. We can express fundamental dispositions in song. Well, the flip side of that is you can, you can express bad human dispositions in song also. And if the song of prayer makes a difference in prayer, then cannot also bad music make a difference for the bad. So that's, that's, that's the drama that's going on there. Thanks. I got thinking about when you talked about uh, Plato and, and the city and the individual in developing these virtues. And all of a sudden it hit me about hermits that go off all to their own or mystics that go off to their own. 
and they don't communicate mainly with other people. So what kind of feedback would, how would, how would Plato look at people that went off privately and were not part of a community to get feedback to know they were going in the right direction in developing their virtues? Great, great question, and, and this is more explicitly taken up by, by Aristotle, who, who says something that I think in many ways St. Thomas will follow him on. The one who leaves the community is, is either crazy or is like a god. That's literally what Aristotle says. And so points being there that uh, there, there is a place then in, 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 in the church's understanding for a hermit. Of course, the, the beautiful thing is, um, even in our Christian tradition, you, you don't, if you go off to be a hermit, it, yes, you are leaving things behind in, in, in a number of relationships behind, but it's always still to seek more relationship. You never be alone for the sake of being alone. The hermit seeks to be alone from us to be with God. Now, so the Greeks are going to, this is why the Greeks, when they think of the hermit, they're more just going to say, you know, I, either he's a crazy man or he's somehow like a god. Which is, is kind of brilliant. I, mean, I think it's, it's not seeing the full picture, but it's seeing very, very clearly how, how human flourishing fundamentally is a relational thing. It's something you do together in community. And even the fundamental uh, Christian religious life is where we gather together in community. And of course, the church is community, and we have the kingdom of God. And I thank you for your question. Thank you, Dr. Federer. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.